for leading us in prayer. If, if you've got a Bible nearby, which you should do, um, grab hold of it again and turn back to page four to our reading from Genesis. And let me just lead us in one other short prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for this time to, to hear your word. Please uh, help us to hear what you're saying. You're a God who speaks. We have that from Genesis onwards. These words are for us. Please help us to give attention to them. Uh, and would you cause them to lead us uh, to the Lord Jesus to trust and love him. Amen. Um, Sunday mornings, you can be a, a little bit sleepy. I know how it is. So just to get you uh, chatting again, uh, turn with somebody nearby and say either, what, what's your favorite film? Or, or a film you've really enjoyed recently. Maybe you, you've watched a movie or a film. So just have a, a minute. Turn to somebody beside you and tell them, good film you've seen or maybe an all-time favorite that you really enjoy. Okay, that's, that's enough, that's enough, Set, settle down, settle down. Um, and let me tell you, look, in my opinion, one, one of the greatest, greatest films <clears throat> of all time is The Princess Brides, uh, an absolute classic. If, you, if you've never seen it, uh, based on a book, uh, but the film adaptation uh, begins with a grandfather uh, reading the book to his unwell grandson. That's how the, the film begins. And the initial conversation, if you've not seen it in the film, goes like this. I think we're going to watch it. Hold it, hold it. What is this? Are you trying to trick me? Is this a kissing book? Wait, just wait. When's it get good? Keep your shirt on. Let me read. There, there we go. Are you trying to trick me? What kind of a story? What kind of a story is this? Um, is this a kissing book? It, it is a great. It is a great film, despite the kissing. Uh, some might say because of the kissing as well. The thing is, the reason for showing that, uh, for those who don't like kissing books, Genesis is going to be a problem. Because for all the ideas it presents about God and creation and the equality and dignity of women and men uh, and the disruption and the corruption that sin introduces into the world that we've seen uh, over the past few weeks as we've looked through this book, you get to chapter 2 and verse 18 and you're having to say, hold on, is this a kissing book? This book you've got in front of you, is it a kissing book? And the answer that comes at this point seems to be yes. And as this book claims not only to be a story, but the story, the story you're in, Genesis says to you at this point, you're in a kissing book. 
You here, you're, you're, you're in a kissing book. The authentic humanity, if you want to understand it, the Bible says you are going to have to grapple at some point with the idea that you're in a love story that involves a marriage. Now, all sorts of reasons, I know that that will mess with your head a little bit when you hear that. Some of you are at a stage in life when you're not even, you're not even wanting to think of it and it just feels kind of icky. We're not doing that. I don't, want to be, I don't want to listen to a kissing story. For others, it's different things, isn't it? We know relationships, like everything else in life, after the fall in sin, are a confusing mixture of glory and garbage. Relationships, there are some that bring genuine joys. Genuine joys. But at other times, they can cause significant pains. And some of us have first-hand experience of serious hurts given and received. That's been our experience. I suppose the question is, look, as you, as you begin to think about those kind of relationships, where, when looking for good patterns of relationships in love, where do you go? Slightly terrifying to discover online influencers like Andrew Tate if you come across him, um, who advocates really kind of male aggression, he says, look, life is war for men. It's war for everything, for jobs, for money, for, sex, for success, for women. Uh, and he, he treats women like possessions. He'll say things like this, a nine gets a dinner, a six gets a glass of water. And you know what he's meaning by that? And it's more alarming to discover he has millions of followers amongst teenage boys and young men. And you begin to think, what kind of vacuum is there in good male role models that would lead people to him? But I guess the question for all of us is, look, if not him, then who? Where do you look for the role models? Interesting as well to come across secular writers like uh, Louise Perry, uh, the journalist who's, who's written a book. She's trying to find a way to healthier romantic relationships. And in her book, the, the Case Against the Sexual Revolution, she reaches this conclusion on marriage. Just, just listen to this. She writes, How is it that a marriage system that does not suit the interest of the most powerful men has nevertheless come to be institutionalized across much of the world. The answer is that although monogamy is less satisfactory for them, that's these powerful men, it produces wealthy, stable societies that survive. Isn't that intriguing? A secular writer, this is someone who, as far as I know, has, has no faith commitment, saying there's something about monogamous marriage that's healthy and good for authentic life. That if you're embarking on the road towards a kind of, if you're embarking on a romantic relationship, she is saying set the course towards marriage. And if you've got a marriage, she's saying do all you can to maintain it. And also, the implication, if you're in a situation where you're not married or cannot be married, even if that is hard, it's still good to be living in a society where there are good and stable marriages. It's interesting, isn't it? Secular writer, not, not a Christian, saying something like that. And if, 
if you do find it interesting, if you're interested by that, the Bible would say you're actually standing at a door that opens onto a much, much bigger reality. Two things. Just as we think about uh, these words uh, from the Bible this morning, here's the first thing. Look, marriage is God's gift to creation. Let me push that a little bit further by saying humanity... This is what the Bible is going to say. Humanity needs this relationship. Needs it. All the way through Genesis 1, we're constantly hearing this kind of refrain. God saw something that he had made. God saw that it was good. But you start running through chapter 2, and when you hit verse 18, it's almost like something's tripped you up. You lose your balance for a bit, because God says here, something's not good. Do you see that verse 18? If you've got the Bible there in front of you, see, see what it says. God comes out with this line. It is not good for the man to be alone. Why? I remember somebody saying that to me once on reading this. Why, why didn't God just make it so it was okay for him to be alone? God's drawing your attention to something. He's saying there's something about his task in imaging God and ruling over creation that God wants, that the way God wants human life to be that cannot be completed alone. And we're told he needs a helper suitable for him. A brief comment about those two words there. By, by helper, <clears throat> helper doesn't mean inferior or superior. It doesn't mean weaker or stronger. It doesn't lean in either of those directions. It's just that the task itself can't be completed alone. There needs to be an other for this role. And suitable, that word suitable that's used there, it means his opposite. This needed helper will not be another version of himself. There will need to be some kind of complementing match. That's what's in this word suitable. And as we read through, I don't know if you noticed, in verses 19 to 20, the animals are brought to Adam to name. You could say just there's a task, he's going to be naming the animals, but it's kind of bookended by this refrain about a, a suitable helper. It's almost as if in God bringing the animals to Adam, he's helping Adam begin to feel his lack. There's something else needed. It underlines he doesn't have a suitable helper. And so in verses 21 and 22, God provides the answer. It's a woman and a marriage. Here's where the Christian teaching begins, that marriage is between one man and one woman. Here's where it begins. That's something the Church of England bishops are in danger of, of throwing away. Now look, just we pause on that for a minute. Let me see. Some people look at this and I know it's hard, particularly in our culture. Some people look at this, and the feeling can be something like this. Look, it's not fair to limit marriage this way. And there might be a knock-on feeling like this. And when the Bible was written, they didn't understand other kinds of loving relationships. So this is unjust. It's unfair. Now, let me just say, and look, afterwards, you can ask me about this and talk about it. But let me, let me throw out a few things. 
I think, first of all, to say that or think that, it makes an assumption about the way God causes the Bible to be written. He is the author that stands behind this. He's caused these words to be written this way and not another way. But look, it's worth noting, no one says when it comes to relationships, do whatever you want. Everyone has boundary rules about relationships. A married person who says they love someone else and thinks it's fine to have a secret affair, it's love. Well, you might say to that, well, well that, that's not right and that's not love. But even the question there is, well, look, who gets to say what love is? I mean, love is love. We're hearing that all the time. So who sets the boundaries for it? Or siblings who say they really love each other in a committed way. Look, I'm not trying to compare these or compare all of those things, but the question is, who decides the boundaries? Is it just the culture of the day? Do we shift with that? As you think about these things, where are the boundaries set and who sets them? The Bible says, this is what our good God intends. Again, ask me about that later if you'd like. Come back with your thoughts. But let's come back to the passage. Now, the Bible says this is what God intends. Now, the woman as she's created, notice there's differences in the way it happens. But like Adam, verse 22, she's created by God's handiwork. God makes her. There's equal dignity in creation here. And Adam's reaction, do you notice it? Verse 23, as he, as he meets this woman, where it says, this is now, it's kind of a joyful outburst. It's kind of more has the sense of, at last, this is it, as he sees her. And then he says, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she's like me. She shall be called woman. She's different to me. There's a quality in difference. Uh, Steve last week, talking about differences between men and women, said that we need to be careful, and that's right. If we're, if we're ever saying things like, men always act like this, or women always act like that, it, it doesn't work like that. Not clear divisions like that. Yet there are differences. There are differences in biological sex. There's, there's differences broadly in male and female traits. Uh, women are a certain thing. Uh, men are a different thing. But look, what I want, to, uh, want us to notice from this today, look, whatever the difference is, they are not only deliberate. God says they're needed. Do you understand that? He's saying... Humanity needed this. These differences are needed and they are to be rejoiced in. Those of you who are younger, maybe beginning to notice members of the opposite sex, you're beginning to notice more, boys are weird. They are, aren't they? Boys are really weird. They do weird stuff. Girls are strange. They are, aren't they? And to all sorts of different things, generally and broadly speaking, but those differences, when you begin to notice them, get this idea logged into your head from the get-go. They are value-added differences. 
Whenever you notice differences between men and women, have this on repeat playing around your head. Whatever the differences are, they are value-added differences. We can have fun with, kind, with sort of kind, playful teasing, can't we? Life would be miserable if we couldn't from time to time have a bit of a joke and a bit of a tease about differences amongst us. But as we do that, we don't mock differences. We never look down on the differences. They're needed. They're deliberate. They are value-added differences. If you feel different in some way in a situation, just remember they are value-added differences you've got. Now, we need to step back for a moment. Genesis uh, is full of details, but as you go through, as we notice the details, we want to do that without losing sight of the big picture. What is going on here? What is going on in this account that we've got? When we meet Adam in verse 18, understand this, as he's naming the animals, Adam, he's effectively the king of the world. The Andrew Tates of this world would love this. Adam is master of all he surveys. He's the king. And then in a moment in this passage, God shows us humanity is made for fellowship more than power. Do you understand that? For all his power, he needs a relationship for the purpose that he has. Or as Derek Kidner puts it in his brilliant little commentary on Genesis, Adam will not really live until he loves. And the kind of love we're shown is one where he wholeheartedly gives himself away to another on his level. The Andrew Tates of the world just don't get that. Marriage is God's gift in creation like this. And the marriage, did you notice it? We didn't quite read it, but have a look at verse 24. Do do you see what we're told about this marriage? It is exclusive. A man leaves his father and mother. There's a new distinct family. You give yourself away from one to the other. It's a giving of yourself. It's permanent. He is united to his wife. He is no longer for himself alone. He is for her and she is for him. It's permanent now. And it's sealed by God. That phrase that's used there, if you see it in verse 24, they will become one flesh. When the Bible speaks of becoming one flesh, it's not less than sexual intimacy, but it's much more. What Genesis is getting at is, is this relationship that includes sexual intimacy is designed as a way to give yourself to another person in a deeply personal way. It's meant to involve self-giving commitment that involves you as a whole person. Or if you want to put it in a, a simpler way, this is saying, don't share your bed if you won't share your bank account and you won't share your dreams. And flip it the other way around. Never share your bed with someone who won't share their bank account with you and won't share their dreams with you. It's meant to be in this context of permanent, exclusive, self-giving commitment. And so again, keep with the big picture. You understand what the big picture is here. What kind of rulers does God want for his world? Well, it's ones that before they get to exercising their power and influence are ones that give themselves away in love 
in permanent service to another. And we'll see this relationship that as you read on in Genesis, it begins to bring out new life and love too. And you're just meant to think at this point, can you imagine living in a world ruled by a family like that? Filled with people who live in that kind of way. This is the vision of the good life the Bible holds out before us. Marriage is God's gift to creation. Humanity, God says, needs this relationship. Now keep that in mind. And here's the second thing with the time we've got this morning. Is the second thing. Marriage is God's gift in Jesus. And he could add on to this for salvation. Marriage is God's gift in Jesus. What do I mean by that? Let me try and unpack it. Look, we've already seen in Genesis, we did the fall a couple of weeks ago. It's not long before humanity flies off the rails. We don't enjoy perfect relationships. We're at that point now, we, we, we just don't. Sometimes it's in marriage. Sometimes it's singleness. Things don't seem to quite pan out like this. Living in God's good world... How did we get to this point? Look, living in God's good world, there was one prohibition. You remember that? We saw it two weeks ago. But in chapter 3, verse 6, Eve eats the fruit that was forbidden from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then she gives some to Adam who eats as well. By chapter 3, verse 12, we're already seeing the impact of sin. You notice that? Challenged by God, Adam throws Eve under the bus. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some and I ate. He just throws her under the bus. Where's the permanent love? It's already beginning to go. It's been disrupted and corrupted by sin. And that will pan out across the centuries all the way down to today. Now, there's something good retained in marriage. No surprise when people like Louise Perry in her book begin to notice it. But it's not what it should be. Those ruling the world now, humanity, have fallen. That's where we live. But look, we're, we're Christian people, aren't we? The Bible is meant to be good news. So where is it? Where, where's the good news? Let, let me try and show you. Um, you know, sometimes historians, for those of you who are into to history or like historic novels, you know, sometimes historians like to, to speculate on what's called a counterfactual view of history. Uh, what if this had happened instead of that? Uh, Robert Harrod, Harris does it in his book, Fatherland. What if, uh, what if the Nazis had won the Second World War? Uh, let me, just for a moment, you can, you can follow this little experiment with me. Uh, let me try and do a little counterfactual here. And draw your attention to a little detail. Just have a look at verse 6. Have you got the Bible there in front of you? Do you see what we're told? Eve eats the fruit and then Adam eats But as you look on to verse 7, it's only after Adam eats we're told their eyes were opened. It doesn't say Eve's eyes are opened after she eats, and then Adam eats and his eyes were opened. No, Eve eats, she sins. Then Adam eats, and then their eyes were opened. The fall, it, it only seems to happen really in its fullest sense after Adam eats. Again, ask me about that later. But here's the kind of counterfactual. After Eve had eaten, instead of eating himself, what might Adam have done? What could he have done differently? And let me suggest what he should have done is to step in and pray, Lord, take me instead. Let me bear her punishment 
and give my life to ransom my wife. He doesn't do that. But the reason I think it's worth speculating on just a little bit is because from this point on, the Bible doesn't give up on marriage. It seems instead to be looking for another bridegroom who will come and lay down his life for his bride. You read on in the Bible and you, you begin to notice the way God speaks about himself as a husband and his people as his wife. Isaiah 54, you can look at this later if you want. God says this, for your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. And then you go over to the New Testament, you come to Jesus and you hear him say, when he's asked why his disciples are not fasting like others, he, he says this, how can, if we just pop on the slide, how can the guests of, you hear these words? The bridegroom fast while he's with them. Jesus is saying, he's the second Adam. He's the promised bridegroom. At one tree in the Garden of Eden, one bridegroom gave into temptation and threw his bride away. On another tree outside Jerusalem, a second bridegroom gave his life away in order to redeem his sinful bride, Jesus Christ and his church. This marriage is God's gift in Jesus for salvation. Humanity needs this relationship. Who does God intend to have ruling over his new creation? Well, it's the Lord Jesus who wears a crown. He really is crowned. But before he exercises his power and influence, he's given himself away in love for you. So his crown is cross-shaped. And he intends to share that crown with his bride, his people, you and me. Can you imagine being in a world filled with life like this? What kind of story are you in? What does it mean to be authentic humanity? It's too trivial to say you're in a kissing story. But you are in a love story. What does that mean? Look, in this life, if you never get married, hear this, marriage is for you because this is where we're heading to. The Lord Jesus with his people, you are loved deeply. Earthly marriage points towards this one, and you will not miss out. If you are married, let your marriage be shaped by the way the Lord Jesus loves his church. And this pattern shown us even back in Genesis chapter 2. And if you're looking for good role models for relationships in life, don't look on YouTube. Look for people who've been shaped by this Jesus. Let's pause. The musicians are going to come back up. Let's have a moment to bring your own thoughts before the Lord and to pray, and then I'll lead us on.